And I was like, well, I have all these puppets. I'll write a show. So I wrote a script and built a puppet stage and I created a program and I had a marketing plan and I had a concession stand that had, I made popcorn and Kool-Aid and I sold those before and after the show and I marketed that again on the bus and I sold (laughs) tickets. And I'm like, what is QED now? Welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. If you landed here, you remembered the NYC. If you didn't, you probably found some weird stuff out there. There's a lot of weird podcasts with no name in it. Anyway, uh, this is the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I am the host of the podcast, and I am the co-founder and MC and producer of No Name and a Bag of Chips the long-running comedy variety show that spawned this. Anyway, thanks. Come on in. Relax. Sit down. Make yourself comfortable. Pour yourself a beverage. Grab a snack. Do whatever you got to do. We're glad you're here. The voice you heard up front is that of Cambry Cruz, writer, storyteller, author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, Burn Down the Ground, and founder and owner and creator of one of the best comedy clubs on the planet, QED. She's an amazing human with an amazing story. You'll get to hear that in a little bit. I loved talking to Camber. You know, she's one of these people who has just kind of a remarkable story. And, you know, I think we all know people like this. They're all around if, if you look, if you're open, who you just say, I can't believe you did that or how could you do that or whatever. We find other people's situations fascinating, I think, and tend to downplay remarkable things that we do on whatever the scale is. But Cambry is one of those people I just genuinely say, you know, when you know her story, it's like, how are you okay? How did you achieve all the amazing things you've achieved? And just because she's a remarkable person, the hearing child of two deaf parents, and it, I won't tell you her whole story now, that's 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 the fun in talking with her. Anyway, but just I have enormous respect for her, and, and, and I love her talent as well as, as a writer, as an artist, and her club is just one of those places that if you're an artist, if you're a performer, you, you, you want to be there. At the time of lockdown, No Name was there monthly. We've done a few shows there since then. It looks like we'll probably go back to being weekly in 2024, uh, which will be exciting. I should mention that for those of you who want to see no-name stuff, especially our, our storyteller editions, remember we're at Word Up Bookshop in Washington Heights the first Tuesday of every month, 7 p.m. Come on out. The next one is Tuesday, November 7th. And among the guests will be our friend Rhonda Handsome, who has been a guest on this podcast, and she she's a remarkable person too. Anyway, talking about remarkable things or whatever... I had declining vision for a number of years, but I I consider myself having gone blind like three years ago. I mean, that's essentially when when all of a sudden everything amped up and in the blink of an eye, um, I couldn't see anything out of the eye. See, I look at someone like Cambry and say she's done remarkable things and like, you know, how the fuck do you do it? But I found that I've become a remarkable person since I've become a blind guy. People come to me, people who've known me for forever, like, you're an amazing person. I I don't know how you do it. Do what? Continue to live? 
I haven't OD'd yet. My horrible diet hadn't yet killed me. It, I mean, it's not that I don't appreciate people saying nice things or whatever. And, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm appreciative. My friends have been amazingly supportive. I couldn't live the life I live if folks didn't regularly, daily, weekly help me do the shit I can't do anymore. But I'm sometimes perplexed by the... For example, our show, No Name in a Bag of Chips, is going to turn 30 years old this coming February, February of 2024, and I'll be letting you know we're going to do some fun stuff around that. In 30 years in the business, (laughs) to whatever degree I've been in the business, I've never received a whole lot of attention for what we do, for what I do, for what we do, except when we turned 20 in 2014. Uh, it's the only time we ever got any kind of media attention. New York Times picked up on us. Uh, I mean, in a small way. It wasn't like a huge article or anything. But, you know, and I did a few interviews or whatever. But that was it. I mean, not even when we turned 25. It, like, no one noticed. We did our 25th anniversary show for, like, a couple of dozen people. Which is fine. You know, we've done other stuff, too. But that was just... It made me think, you know, it's, it's all relative. But since I've become blind, people think I'm a remarkable person. And and I just thought, you know, if I really wanted to get some attention for my work, I should have gone blind years ago. It's interesting to me how we perceive what is remarkable in other people. So I'm going to go in a totally different direction for a sec. I just want to whine for one sec You know, like, for example, I know in her book, Cambry talks about, you know, how the world is not set up to assist deaf people. Her her parents are both deaf. And it's true. The the world is not particularly deaf people friendly. And I'm now discovering the same is true for blind folks. You have a handful of traffic lights in the city that make beeps and whirs to kind of let you know what the light is. You know, there are a number of things that are helpful. Like this past Christmas, my dear friend Tamara Wilson gave me a watch that talks to me. So I can do this. And and forgive me, I'm going to demonstrate the the watch, how it works. But I, I feel I always need to do this in, in a character because of what I think the voice sounds like. So, Mr. Bond, tell me if you dare, what time is it? So you say, Mr. Bond, so you say. Anyway, so that, that watch is, is helpful, although it's, it's weird um, because, you know, like if I'm wearing long sleeves and it's over the watch and I'm, I'm sitting in, in a movie theater and I turn the wrong way, you're in a movie, it's a crucial moment to say, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> you know, if I turn the wrong way, that, that could happen. Lately, I, I just I keep complaining about my Google Assistant, the app on my phone, which supposedly helps you a lot by you know uh, responding to voice commands for doing things, for making calls or whatever. It's just say the Google Assistant. I guess it's advanced technology, not exactly supercharged. The bugs are not all out of it. Doing the podcast, I'm doing the podcast for a couple of years now, but I still feel like I'm learning on the job. And I, I listen back to a lot of the episodes, you know, try and get a sense of what what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? The guests have all been, like, just great, and they tell their stories or whatever. But, you know, I'm still, there is no, as I've said before, there is no open mic to learn how to be a podcast host. And it's not the same skill set as hosting a live show. So nowadays, you know, I need to give my phone commands to play the episodes back. Now, I was trying, last month, one of our guests was Pat O'Shea. 
And I wanted to listen back to the Pat O'Shea episode. I, this is totally unrehearsed. I'm doing this spontaneously, but I believe it will show you what I was dealing with. Uh, let's try this. Hey, Google, play No Name NYC podcast with Pat O'Shea. Okay, resuming QAnon Anonymous, premium episode 229, The Ritual Killer, 2023, movie night, sample on Google Podcasts. What? Um, oh, crap. Hold on. Now I got to turn the phone off. Hey, Google. Hey, Google. Pause. Lordy. What? No, 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 no. Hey, Google. Hey, Google. Pause. Shut up. Anyway, I have never once tried to listen to anything called QAnon Anonymous podcast. When I was trying to listen to the Pat O'Shea episode... What you just heard happened over a hundred times before I gave up. I don't know quite what to make out of this, but as I see stuff like this happening with technology, all I can say is, please vote. All right, well, you've heard me babble long enough. If you're still listening, thanks for listening. I'm thankful to each and every one of you for being here, and we're going to get to great conversation with Cambry Cruz after this word from our sponsor, If you've been here before, you know what to say. Say it with me. Stand up. Say it loudly in front of your device, wherever you're listening to, and say this. I don't care if you're in public, if you're by yourself, or if you're at the gym. Please, stand and say this. Get away to Green Bay. Escape to Green Bay. That's right. The historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. I don't know if you've ever been to a bed and breakfast before, but the breakfast in a lot of these places tends to be like a mini box of cereal or uh, some questionable fruit, things of that nature, a piece of toast maybe with some butter. But not at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will provide you with a delicious, absolutely world-class breakfast every single morning. They will also make you feel welcome in any one of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. If you want to know what's going on around town, Tom and Linda will let you know about any special events, and they'll also make recommendations for you to any of the wonderful restaurants in town. So you can't beat it. Go. Go now. Go. Get away to Green Bay. For more information or for reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Get away to Green Bay. I think the last time you and I had a sit down in any kind of a relaxed fashion, it was at some place, maybe a burger joint or something, near the Kaufman Astoria Studios, and we were talking about what you thought you might be doing in the future. You were looking eyeing the possibility of taking over a bookshop that had just closed. And that didn't happen, but this happened, this so QED thing. So this was thing. before QED that we yeah, had a it was before QED. conversation? Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, exactly. ago, at least. What ultimately became QED was what you were mulling over, yeah. how you were going to do. 
You remember what I'm talking about, though, right? It wasn't a bookshop. I don't know what it would have been, but yes, I know what, I think I know what you're talking about. Refresh me. Well, okay, so when my book, Burned Down the Ground, plug, (laughs) when it came out, I was going on tour. Comics, the comedy club that I had done some PR and producing and marketing for, closed, which took Ochi's Lounge with it. And Ochi's Lounge was my little, like, Mm 35-seater in the basement of comics. And that place was kind of legendary. Totally legendary. It burned shortly, but brightly, very brightly. And the echoes are still felt, I think. Three years, two and a half to three years, which, honestly, in this industry is not that. (laughs) short but um, that's true but very very brightly for sure and I loved Ochi's but it was always it was under the purview of the owners of comic it was their building and their space did they approach you did you approach no them? I approached them because after about a year of working at comics PR marketing producing and it's a small business so you also end up doing a million other things you know mm. so it's a small business and it was a new business in the meatpacking district so it was struggling because it's not even a year old but it was doing really well and making a lot of buzz it had mm. a lot of famous people in there but the you know you need to maximize income for a large large space like that and they yeah. had this downstairs space that sat empty it was supposed to be like a private event space but it was right next to the bathrooms and right next to the kitchen it was not well designed or well thought out. It was a throughway to the bathroom. So you've got- I, I, I presume it was an, an, an existing space that they were working with rather than it was created no, that it way. Was an, they, they had an architecture. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. They weren't event people. They were rich people who wanted a toy project, right? Right. If you were to ask an event person, what do you need for an event space? They're going to tell you not to have a 400-seat theater empty out and and all these people need to go to the bathroom that's right next to your <laughs> event space, right? Right, So right, it's right. that empty. And so I said, hey, if I if I took over this, could I you know, maybe make a little room out of it? I forget what my deal was. Basically, I paid for the cost of any staff and electricity, you know, nominal fee for electricity, and then the staff. So that would come out of the profits of any food and beverage sales. So I got a small cut of the food and beverage, but I I was like, we got to keep it free because you can't really control ingress and egress and stuff because of the bathroom situation. And it makes sense. And it's just, it's not a place where you're going to charge stuff. It's just not that kind of room. Mm -hmm. And so it, it burned brightly, as you said, and it was great. And I loved it. And then comics closed. But it closed right around the time my book was coming out. So for a short time, I did some booking for the 92nd Street Y Tribeca location. Our first show ever with like a really full band was actually there? our one and only show at 92 uh, Y Did Tribeca. I book you for that? Uh, yes, you did. Uh, oh, cool. And Yay. You, look at and, me. Past me. You did a good job. <laughs> no, no. I, I, we, we were forever great. It, it, that show kind of, it was a big deal for us in a lot of ways because it was kind of a, a milestone for us, both in terms of the, the level of lineup top to bottom that yeah. we had and the fact that we had a band with a horn section and cool. backing singers. Yeah. And you were gone, I think, about a week after the show. Oh, yeah. It was right around the time that you were exiting. Because that's when my book came out. Yeah, I I think I was there for like a year or two or something. And I booked mm. like, I booked Katie Lazarus's show. And so, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we had Elmo there, the original Elmo. And I didn't remember that. Yeah, we had the Daily Show writers. We had, had a that lot of really, yeah. really high quality shows. But it was a very cavernous space. And mm. it was in a very difficult part of town. And yeah. so the fact that, that 
that whole building ended up shutting down and the whole venue ended up shutting down is not a surprise to me. Because, I mean, we would book some, like, really, really top quality stuff and it was just Oh, shit, a, oh, yeah. That, I mean, that, yeah. Was, that was part of why it was such a big deal to us. Like, we're playing with the big yeah, time right now. it is. Totally the big time, right? You know. Um, and I did like that. Uh, and we did try to recreate Ochi's in a little place called Luca Lounge. Not to be confused with Luna Lounge of uh, that whole Lower East Side. I think it was like uh, Ludlow Street or something with like Janine and Mark Marin and that graduating class, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Luca Lounge was a disaster right from the get-go. You want to it, – it's not – OG's wasn't like catching lightning in a bottle or something. You can recreate it. Sure. You just have to have the right situation. And what is New York? The biggest problem is space and venues. That frustration with Luca, the ending of uh, my tenure at the 92Y, the ending of comics and OGs and all that came at the right time because it allowed me to focus on my book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my book was my life story. So that's, I wanted to pour my life and heart and soul into it. So it was good timing. Mm -hmm. If I may, let's go back from there. Where did you originally come from? Well, uh, for the uninitiated, I grew up with a deaf family in off-the-grid rural Texas, South Texas. We lived in a tin shed for a time without running water, without electricity, without plumbing. We did get a trailer that got repossessed. <laughs> and so we were homeless and moved back into the shed. And then my dad tried to kill my mom. Uh, I witnessed and prevented it. I guess prevented it or I intervened. How's that? Uh, he wow. did not serve time because Texas, 80s. Then years later, after I moved to New York, then he was found guilty of attempted murder for another woman for a very similar type of crime. Since the book has come out, he has now since died in prison. But the book ended with my very first visit to him behind bars. So that's my story. That's how where it came from. <laughs> yeah. A saga. So, so it was a comedy, comedy seemed yeah. a natural fit. Right, exactly. Jinx. <laughs> comedy or, or or something really heinous. Those were pretty much the two <laughs> right. options. I'm I either going to be a serial killer or a comedian. Which is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> well thanks for choices. going to the comedy route <laughs> yeah. on behalf of Welsh society. So you think. Um, I want to talk for a minute about the experience because you, you, uh, you had one sibling, right? One older brother, yeah. And you were both hearing children right. of two deaf parents, yeah. right? Yeah. So you you had a slightly atypical childhood. Yeah, it's a different culture, and and it seems very otherworldly. Of course, the movie Coda has since come out, but people are just so immensely fascinated by the idea of being in a deaf family and sign language and everything. It's very intriguing. I don't know. There's something about it that attracts people, but. It really is just like living in an immigrant household where English is the second language. It's mm -hmm. almost identical experiences where you're trying to bridge two cultures. You're trying to explain why something's funny to uh, hearing people. Mm -hmm. Or if, if you're an immigrant family, you know, you're trying to explain why people act the way they do or why certain things are funny that you're not being made fun of. Um, you know, you're interpreting and in sometimes often inappropriate situations, depending on the level of dependency on 
your your parents. You were frequently in the position of having to be the go between between them and the police world, right? with my dad and the police. Uh, with my grandmother, my mom's parents were also deaf, and her sister's deaf. My mom's mother very much treated me like a personal assistant when I would come and spend the summers with her, which mm-hmm. I didn't mind. It always made me feel very needed and important, and mm-hmm. um, I do think that that's why my mom is so codependent because <laughs> she she was definitely the savior of the family because this was when she was born in 1947 growing up there's no closed captioning there's no ADA laws so they very much relied on her and her dad even encouraged her to not go to college so the opposite of what you know because we need you around here that's exactly right we need you around here and let let me ask you this one most kids learn to begin speaking by hearing their their parents talk so was it the same sort of thing only you're going by I mean they they use sign language right yeah so English is my second language I always say sign language was my first and of course it's American sign language so it is English still but sign language was my first language Um, I'm hearing so I hear the world around me and so naturally I pick up speaking. My brother being older also helped. And then also my mom is verbal. So some uh, deaf people are more verbal than others. My dad is completely nonverbal. My mom speaks actually very well. Mm -hmm. She stayed home with me after she had me. She stayed home with me for a few years. Whereas when she had my brother, he stayed home with her mom and her mom was nonverbal. And they didn't have television. So he. And how much older is your brother? Four and a half years, three and a half years. A a significant. Little breathing space in there. Yeah, but. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's where I came from, and that's my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There'll be another, like, more proper plug, but uh, just <laughs> an additional plug. It, it, it's a great book. It ended up becoming a New York Times bestseller, like a full year and a half after it came out. Oh, man. And, yeah, and that's I, did, I knew it was a bestseller. I didn't know it took that yeah. long to get there. well, so... That's true of... Like built a um, word of mouth kind of thing? No, sort of, I guess. Uh, Jeanette Walls's Glass Castle also did not become a, a bestseller until her paperback came out. Mm. When my book came out, it came out as an ebook and a hardcover with Random House. And then Penguin and Random House merged. And as a result of that merger, they had to make decisions like, oh, well, let's not... Let, let's cut the paperback option on this book or, you know, they had to start consolidating and making hard decisions. For my book, they decided that the ebook was selling well enough. So let's funnel all our attention on the ebook and not issue the paperback. I, of course, was disappointed feeling like that was some sort of a failure. It's not a failure. It's just, it's a business decision on a a very, very large merger, right? Sure. And Um, and, and I would imagine around that time, too, the beginnings of a shift in in the publishing business have have begun anyway where... E-based. And unfortunately, at the time, audiobooks weren't really as hot as they are now because I never got to record my audiobook. Well, some people still wanted to actually read a book. Yeah. But <laughs> by funneling all that energy and not coming out with a paperback, people didn't have a choice but to buy the ebook. And uh, then Amazon put it on sale one day for like deaf awareness or disability awareness month or something. And so, and then bam, just, it was like an instant bestseller. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Isn't that funny? So something which I found as a step backward or as a frustration ended up becoming... A positive thing. 
And, and there was never any reach back to to consider doing an audio book. You know, they uh, Random House Penguin Random House now still has the rights to it. And around the pandemic time, I had emailed them, or I yeah, I had to write a certified letter requesting for the rights back mm-hmm. because the hardcover is not in print anymore. So it's like after a certain amount of time, you're allowed to then ask the publisher to get the rights back. Right. So I wanted to do that so that I could then publish either a paperback and record an audio book. But it was the pandemic time. Yeah. So they did sign for the certified mail, but nothing ever came from it. And of course, I was like drowning here at QED. Uh, I was going to say that yeah. you, you were a little bit involved at the time. Yeah, a little involved. I, I feel like it's going to be one of those things that is always niggling in the back of my mind of like, oh, I need to do this, or oh, I should ask about this, and how do I get this? Uh, uh, and I do think about it probably every six weeks. I'm like, oh, I should write to somebody. Some If I had help, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, so you're you're growing up in in Texas in this circumstance. Did you have thoughts for the future in terms yeah. of performing? Or? I'm so glad you asked this. That's funny because it's I was thinking about maybe dusting off my solo show, and part of and also of writing maybe a second book about um, running a show, running a business, right? Um, and, I, I would want to read right. I know. I would want to read that book. I would want to see that show. Right. And the solo show, I did an adaptation of my book. I did it exactly three times, twice, Mm -hmm. right around the time the book came out at the pit, Mm -hmm. and then a third time here at QED like eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, are people sick of the story? And then I'm like, oh, no, like 3,000 people know my story. (laughs) Like the world is. Yeah. It's okay to do old stories. No, It's a great story, well told uh and although i didn't see i've seen i haven't seen your your show i've seen you You've tell seen stories yeah, or whatever yeah. and and i know that would be yeah. uh engaging enough to to justify bringing it back for yeah. sure okay i'm going to probably dust that off Pro- uh, probably knock on wood we'll see but anyway when i was a kid living very isolated and with deaf parents, which is doubly isolating, you know, like we didn't really, like I didn't go to camp and we didn't have, we had music playing in the house and in television, they were very engaged in the news, my father in particular. We read a lot, like we had so many books in the house. And so it's not like I was isolated from culture and education and things like that, but from other kids my age and I was the only girl for miles, you know, and uh, so I spent a lot of time alone and in silence, you know. Yeah. And so I turned my bedroom into a fully operational library. We had a book of the month club, and I amassed such a large collection of them. I was like, so I, I took inventory of them. I kept an, a, a written inventory of all of them. And then I was like, well, I've got all these books, and I've read them all. How can I monetize this, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a forever an entrepreneur. Like, say it's in, in the DNA. <laughs> right? But also not only just monetizing it, but I love these books so much. I want other people to read these books, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I inventoried them. I did a Dewey Decimal System. I created little card catalog slips and like uh, uh, little pockets with a card in the back that I glued in. So you, I would keep track, just like a regular library. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a written inventory book uh, binder that I would bring on the 
bus and people would select the books that they wanted. It was like a bookmobile, sort of. Yeah. And so they would check the books out. Um, But I also was very possessive of my books. I didn't have a lot of things, you know, we were so poor. So I made you fill out a questionnaire to see if you were up to the task of the responsibility (laughs) for checking these out. Were were there late fees? (laughs) Yes, there were late fees, of course. Yeah. No deposits. Oh, that would have been a good idea. That was one of my little projects that kept me very busy. And then the other one, in art class, we made paper mache puppets. And I made all the Linus and Lucy Peanuts characters, you know. And so after art class, we got to keep them. And they were felt bodies and paper mache heads. And Uh I was like, well, I have all these puppets. I'll write a show. So I wrote a script and built a puppet stage and I created a program and I had a marketing plan and I had a concession stand that had, I made popcorn and Kool-Aid and I sold those before and after the show and I marketed that again on the bus and I sold tickets. And I'm like, what is QED now? (laughs) It is literally that puppet show that I put on and it has a library in the front. And I've got, I don't have a Dewey Decimal System, but I do have a card catalog. I'm like, uh, I have recreated my childhood nightmare. <laughs> no, but, a, a you, but you've added plumbing, so that's a positive. Yeah, true, true. We do have a bathroom. <laughs> By yeah. the way, just may I say, on, on behalf of myself and other performance, thank you. Right? Not only that, but and it's, it's, indoor. A, it's a good one. It's a nice <laughs> yes. one. I've been to some dive bars. Luca oh, Lounge. Man. Let's rest in peace. <laughs> that one, that, that bathroom is, was I the think. worst. So you've got the library, you're... you're you're putting on puppet shows. Yeah. And and about how old are you when you're doing this? Between the ages of 7 and 11 or 12. And then, you know, puberty starts and <laughs> you, know, you fall out of that stuff. But that's also when our family started to disintegrate and I started working. I started working when I was 13. And I when I say working, like real job, not some bullshit lemonade stand. Yeah. I was bussing tables. I ran a fireworks stand, which I don't know how that is legal, especially (laughs) because that's when I also started smoking. So I'm smoking at the fireworks stand. It is just so (laughs) irresponsible. And I'm in charge of all these. (laughs) I'm in charge of all these explosives and like randos come on (laughs) and they pull off the side of the road and make a purchase. I've got all this money and explosives. And I was 13 smoking. Wow. So stupid. I'm just glad you're here to tell the story. Holy too. crap. Me too. Uh, yeah. So how long did you do that? The fireworks stand was seasonal, and that was every summer for like two summers I did that. And okay. then the, um, I worked at a yacht, the yacht club bussing tables for, a, well, I guess, a year. And then we moved up, up to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Mm. So when I was about 15, I think, is when I started working at Showbiz Pizza. So, And I worked full-time there in the summer and then part-time during the school year. So, like, re- real jobs. And you're now, like, late high school? I was, like, a sophomore when I started at uh, Showbiz. And then I also became um, an assistant manager at Malibu Grand Prix, which was a racetrack. And I was mm-hmm. 16, and they made me a night manager. I also always lied about my age, so they always oh, thought okay. I was a little older. But still, the fact that I was able to do it and that they entrusted me to do it, that's what independent living with deaf parents will do to you. You get mature well, I mean, really quickly. Yeah. I was going to say you had to grow up really fast, I would imagine, because you've got to do a lot of grown-up things to help right, them. Yeah, I was making phone calls to the airports 
or airlines and reserving airline tickets for myself to fly from Houston to Tulsa to spend with my deaf grandparents over the summer. I would book my own airline tickets. So I'd make these reservations and plan out my flights to and from Tulsa. I would fly by myself and they never had an escort for you Mm -hmm. back then. So I would like go to an international airport. My parents would drop me off. I would go to my gate (laughs) and meet deaf people on the other side. And I don't know how I'm alive. I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) And I would then spend the summer being my uh, grandma's right-hand man, taking her to all her appointments and doing all her banking. She would just like save up all the assignments for when Cambry was in town. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Can you help me reconcile this? (laughs) Did you ever just dream about one day I, I, I either want to do this exclusively for my own affairs or maybe just hire someone to do that? I always thought I was very grown up. It felt very grown up. With regard to like what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always thought I was going to be an actress. My mom said when I was like 16 months old, I have a scar on my left eyebrow from trying to put on a show for my dad and him being deaf, uh, not hearing me. I'm like trying to stomp on the floor, but we had shag carpeting so he couldn't feel the vibration. Mm-hmm. So I like ran over to him and I like tap his newspaper. I'm like, watch me. I'm going to sing for you. I'm going to be a movie star when I grow up. Da, da, da. Oh. And then, then I run back, trip, hit my head on the fireplace, right? And they, my parents take me to the emergency room and they're like, um, how old is she? <laughs> you said she was 16 months because she's like singing and telling <laughs> stories in sign language. And they're like, yeah, that's just her. And they're like, um, I don't know that I was a savant or anything. And I'm not, I don't think I'm extraordinarily high IQ or whatever. I just feel like, gosh, if somebody would have maybe intervened, like, could I have maybe gone to college? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So you didn't go to college? No, no. Partly because of my dad and him trying to kill my mom, that whole thing. But (laughs) That that, that could throw a crimp into stuff. It threw a little wrench into the plans, yeah. So how old were you when that happened? I was 16. Summer I turned 17. By then I was, like I said, working full time. And uh, my boyfriend was like 23 Mm. (laughs) and in the Navy. And the Navy pays you money to be married. They pay you dependent and housing pay. So he and I got hitched, which I was only 17, so my mom had to sign the permission Mm. slip. But, yeah. Uh, How were they talking about, you know, your grandma and wanting to keep folks around? How were your parents about the prospect of losing you to for the aid you provide them or whatever? My mom had moved on. My dad was uh, Moved on slash escaped? Uh, got, got hitched right away. Like as soon as she was officially divorced from my dad, she mm. almost immediately shacked up with another guy. And um, my dad, we were, of course, estranged. Uh, and it took, I don't know, it took about five years before I started to really see him on a semi-regular basis. But we stayed in touch via letters. Mm-hmm pretty regularly. And it was the days before email, but even after email came out, he was kind of a, a wanderer, uh, vagabond, you know. So. Mm-hmm. so did that sort of lifestyle start like after? Yes, except I uh, even prior to, I think on they, my parents got married when they were 19. They met mm. in, a, in school, at deaf school. And their deaf school was a a dormitory boarding school, you know, so they didn't live at home. They lived mm-hmm. in dorms. So they're, they're not experiencing a lot of the outside world, just each other in that uh, space? Yeah. I mean, the the outside world, of course, they had exposure to it. They went to the movies and they did outings okay. and All stuff. Right. But um, And my mom, you know, w- was with her family a lot more than my dad. My dad 
grew up on a farm and his parents were very poor and isolated. And so his deaf experience was really traumatic, whereas my mom very much loved being deaf and would have loved having deaf kids and her mm. parents are deaf, everybody in her whole life, the forwards and backwards, you know. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard sometimes that can become a very insular sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, was that the case here? Or? The, my dad hated being deaf, and he only wanted to hang out in the hearing world. My mom loved being deaf and liked being part of the deaf club, deaf, deaf bowling tournaments, deaf everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. very culturally, capital D, deaf. Mm-hmm, yeah. My mm-hmm. dad, if, if implants, cochlear implants had been a thing, he would have been the first in line. But Got yeah, it. by the time they came out, also they're so cost prohibitive, and so you get you get hitched. Yeah, at that point, where are the actress dreams? Tabled, frustratingly so. I think I used to uh, sing. I dreamed a dream in time gone by, like, <laughs> but <Aww>. meaning it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was so depressed. I hated married life. I My ex-husband, bless his heart, is a very good person. I'm still friends with him and his family, but I did not need to be married at 17. I needed to be in college. I needed to be pursuing my, my own life and dreams and everything. My brain wasn't done growing, for God's mm-hmm. sakes, you know? But yeah, that whole song that I dreamed a dream, I, I think I sang it on repeat. Much to his chagrin. Like, how can you imagine <laughs> having your child bride singing about how she... <laughs> yeah, I thought... I've gone by hope without life uh, worth I'm going to take a living. walk now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh man. bless his heart. Um, you know, I'm a, a practical person, and bills need to get paid, and mm. I have zero family or anyone to turn to. Um, so I got to work. I started working nights, and he was from Ohio, so we moved to be closer to his family when he mm-hmm. got out of the Navy. And I started working as a bank teller because they had an education program and also a program where you could, like, they hire from within, mm-hmm. so managerial-type programs and stuff. I started bank tellering at day, and I went to paralegal school at night. And so I spent two years earning my associate degree at this night school, the Academy of Court Reporting and Paralegal Studies in Akron, Ohio. That's what you want on your resume, <laughs> right? And this is why I want to maybe write a bizwar. Like running the fireworks stand, waiting, bussing tables, especially at a yacht club, which was, you know, it was like a black tie place. Yeah. Um, to being a bank teller and wearing the Chuck E. Cheese costume and <laughs> running the animatronic. Uh, do you remember the Rock of Fire explosion? Like I did that. I helped the, do the puppeteering for that. And uh, all of these ran, seemingly random and disjointed jobs, they all have provided such useful information and skills that have contributed to the success of QED. QED would not be here if I did not at one time don a giant rat suit. <laughs> I would not be here if I had not been in charge of a fireworks stand. And uh, like the, all the various things that, that get baked into a life, um, it all mattered with regard to making QED. And working uh, a, at a, as a bank teller was not what I dreamed of. But I was going to night school to be a paralegal. It was a means to an end. But I did like law. I enjoyed studying the law 
And I didn't mind the idea of becoming a lawyer, but I didn't have the money or the means to become a lawyer. So I thought being a paralegal would at least tell me, do I like this kind of lifestyle or whatever before I invested right. Enough in it. to go down right. that path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But through that, I worked my way up through the bank and I became an assistant vice president of the bank. Oh, damn. I, 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 I knew you had some bank stuff in there. I didn't know you'd written to yeah. that. Yeah. I think I, I have the news article. I was like either 20, between the age of 23 and 25, somewhere in there, a ridiculously young age. Where Banks you know? have a million assistant VPs, right? I was a vis- assistant vice president of credit quality. This department was in charge of repossessing high end commercial real estate. Oh, man, so now you're on the other side. Other side, but it was really rich people. So it was like their commercial, like their dentist practice was going under. And so I would repossess dentist equipment, that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. One guy, he was definitely like an embezzler dude. He had like $10,000 cash in the side of his DeLorean. He had a stupid DeLorean, right? Yeah. He had a yacht that we ended, that was like shrink wrapped, you know, in the winter time they shrink wrap him. So we had to like cut through and break into it. And we found all kinds of money and jewels and stuff. So it was really fun and exciting, but it was still bill collecting. And like, I got to know the dentist and I was like, this sucks. I don't want to, I don't, yeah, I don't want to be this to him, you know? Yeah. Um, you must get to a point where you start hoping they're really horrible people so it right. doesn't feel so bad, right, right? Right, right. But at the end of the day, though, I was still in banking and not acting. So as soon as I had finished my paralegal degree, the very first time that I had my nights open again, the very mm-hmm. first thing I did was went out and auditioned for a community theater play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Noises Off. And did I got that. cast in that. And I ended up winning an award for it at the end of the year, like the regional theater. Don't you um, ever get tired of overachieving? (laughs) No, (laughs) no. (laughs) It gives me purpose in life. Nobody else cares about me. I gotta care about me. No, I don't know. It's it's definitely a a mental illness. (laughs) You're just doing the work. Yeah. You know, and you're good at it. Yeah. Thank you. I I, yeah. I think I'm I'm all right. No, but you know what I mean. There are some people who achieve certain things, and you're like. Oh, they must be really screwed up to have done that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know what dark secrets you're holding, but you don't project that. You look, no, this is the end result of what you did. We're acting. I'm a fine actor. I'm not nothing special. I was a big fish in a small pond. When I moved to New York to pursue acting, really, I was like, yeah, I'm not that great of an actor, but I want to be in the arts. And going back to whenever I was 16 months old and I told my dad I was going to be a movie star when I grew up and got a, a scar on my head for it, I didn't know that what I'm doing now is a job. I didn't know that being on the other side of the stage was an Like, I didn't know that there were jobs and mm-hmm. that, that that's what I actually liked doing. As ah. a kid, I just knew that I love well, you, you were normally an, uh, and naturally an organizer and Yeah, naturally curator. a producer and a curator and an organizer and bring people together. I do all of those things very naturally, and I love it. But I didn't know that to I could do all that and not be on the stage or not be behind the mic, you know? Mm-hmm. Um Partly because I didn't have other people around me. We didn't have theater around me, you know, where I could actually get involved. But then also I was a big fish in a small pond. Like, so I am the loudest and the the most gregarious and the most outgoing. So they put me in the lead role in second grade, you know, and they, 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 I get the gig in Noises Off and I do well. Um, 
but but when it came to like actually auditioning for things on Broadway or no 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 I'm no I I couldn't no. So what do you do? I immediately realize oh I can't really act in the way that I'm sorry to interrupt but how are you paying the bills at this point? I quit my day job uh, and ran away basically from <laughs> Ohio. I was like I'm done and I just packed up everything, quit. A very, very good job. And so I came across country to New York without a job, and I got a job immediately at a law firm in Rockefeller Center as a, an executive assistant. So not a paralegal, but my mm. paralegal degree certainly helped land me right. a, a more higher-end law office job, right? Yeah. Um, but can I tell you something weird? I just My niece was just in town, mm. and I took her to the Rockefeller Center, of course, and it I was suddenly reminded of what my first trip to New York City. And so I told her this story about how thoughts become things and how you can manifest a, a better life for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, it was in the mid to late 90s. My theater friends and I drove in a van to see like six shows in three days. Theater geeks, we love theater, we love. And so they had been to New York, so I was with people who could help show me around. But after a few days, I'm like, I want to just go on my own. And I just want to walk up to the Met. No one else wanted to go to the Met. And I was like, I kind of just want to walk and just be on my own and see what it feels like. Uh, So my first stop from Times Square was Rockefeller Center. I wanted to go to Saks Fifth Avenue. I don't know why. <laughs> it was a thing I've seen on <laughs> because TV. Because you could. I don't, I don't even really shop like that. But I was like, yes, I'm getting my first stop is Saks Fifth Avenue, Rockefeller Center. But they weren't open yet. So it must have been like 9.45 or mm-hmm. whatever time they opened. It was just a few minutes before. And so I just kind of had to sit and be in Rockefeller Center. And I sat on a bench directly across the opening for 625th Avenue at the Channel Gardens. And I was writing in a journal and just being and soaking up the vibe. And I was like, man, when I move to New York City, I want to work here. I want to be here. And I'm not joking that I got a job at 625th Avenue. I mean, goosebump inducing, right? It was not only did I manifest moving to New York, but I manifested the place I wanted to be in the in the exact building. So I was like, oh my God, I need to start manifesting more because <laughs> <laughs> I should have aimed high. Dream big. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But yeah, that was a few years before I actually then made the trip. So I had already dipped my toes into being in New York mm-hmm. and I loved it and I hated being in banking. I liked Cincinnati, but I had moved to Columbus for a couple of years to work uh, at a better banking job. You know, I was bouncing around right. from banks and I hated Columbus with every fiber <laughs> of my being. And it was what Christian, my husband, and I call my lost years. It was just mm-hmm. a lot of debauchery and drinking and bad behavior and wasted time, wasted energy, so much wasted time. I don't have a lot of regrets in life. I think regrets are wasteful, but yeah. that was wasted time. If I had to point to one, it would be that two-year period of my life. You're allowed. You, you, yeah. you were too busy when you were a teenager to have it then. Well, yeah. And also, that's when I also started getting really angry. Uh, and, and so that's hence the drinking. Uh, mm. Really angry at my parents. And I'm, I don't want to cry, but yeah, just angry. <laughs> and how did they not take care of me. I was so I was such a good kid and I was so smart. How did I not get to go to college? How did I not get to have a life that I deserved? And it was because of them. And I could point directly to them. It was their fault. And I wanted them to take ownership for that and to kind of I wanted somebody to pay for it. Um 
but ultimately, I think that's a rational response. it's totally rational. Uh, it's totally rational, but at, at the end of the day, <laughs> nobody pays for it. Nobody. There's uh, the uh, the only person I was hurting was myself with all the heavy drinking and all the anger and everything. Mm -hmm. I was only hurting myself and I was stunting any forward progression. Thank God I got over that. And I um, got to Cincinnati, which I loved Cincinnati, the city, mm -hmm. but I was still in banking. And so I only spent six months there. And yeah. uh, then I like just quit everything, hopped in my, I had a VW Cabrio, which I think they used to call them rabbits. And then they became cabriolets, and then they became cabrios. But all I know is it was a cute little convertible that I loved and moved to New York with and realized, oh, I can't keep this beautiful little car that I love so much because it's worthless here. So I sold it and, and got the job at the law firm. And <laughs> I started working nights doing comedy stuff, theater stuff, anything in the entertainment, anything. I was really? doing everything and anything, going to see every show in the books, just immersing myself in it. And by day, I was doing paralegal work for very high, high maintenance, <laughs> right, right, right. super high maintenance lawyer in emotional. Uh, the amount of work that he required of me was almost nil. So I was able to run Tex in the City. I don't know if you remember. I, oh, I, I, that may be where I first Probably. actually met yeah. you. I, I saw you perform before oh, yeah? that existed at Sarah Benincasa's show. Okay, so Tex in the City, we resurrected. So in the early days of Tex in the City, I was not performing yet. Sarah oh, Benincasa's, okay, so yeah, that yeah. Was definitely before I met Yeah, you. so when I created Ochi's, that's when I resurrected Tex in the City, and we started doing some monthly parties. Yeah, and that's yeah, where yeah. I would have met you. And Sarah Benincasa's show was like the family hour. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, is that when you first started doing storytelling? St first started doing storytelling. After being in and around Ochi's and seeing some of what people were trying and on stage, Christian, my husband, boyfriend at the time, <laughs> would introduce me to people as a way of deflecting attention on himself because mm. at the time, you know, Chappelle show had come out. He was getting so much attention. He loved it, sure. I mean, who doesn't? But it also made him deeply uncomfortable. He's not really good with small talk. He doesn't remember people's names and faces and things like that. And I always remember people's names. And so he's he would like pull me into conversations as a help. So, so you're interpreting again. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, uh -huh. Take a step back. So, so you're you're doing the law firm thing. Your evenings are filled with theater stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you get to OGs? When I first moved to New York, I was doing a lot of PR and marketing um, for Broadway shows. I also uh, had gotten a gig in Columbus that I kept in Cincinnati that I kept in New York, which was, <laughs> you're not going to believe this. I used to be the ambassador for Jose Cuervo on their their private island in the Caribbean. <laughs> So Jose Cuervo, the gig I had in Columbus and Cincinnati was basically like a brand stunt marketing. We had a double-decker bus, and we would go around and throw parties and try to get people to sign up to the mailing list, essentially, uh -huh. and to sign up to enter a contest. Usually it was at bars, but sometimes it would do bowling alleys, just going to places where people were. And this double-decker bus was so fun and so attention-getting. You know, it's stunts. It's stunt marketing. The prize winners, 14 of them, 
them, sometimes 12, would be flown out to a private island in the Caribbean where they would have a big party for three, four days. Oh, the Cuervo Island? It was called the Cuervo Nation. It's called Marina K in real life, but Mm -hmm. it's uh, about five acres. You could swim around it in less than 10 minutes. It's pretty great. And I was an ambassador, so I lived on the island and... Basically, I was paid to party and make sure they partied and drank a lot of Cuervo. Mm. So it was very silly, but it was also stunt marketing, which, again, all the jobs that I've had, yeah, this yeah, really yeah. debaucherous, dumb, dumb job. I mean, like we were on E, Wild on E with Anna Nicole Smith and a couple of other things like that. But then we were also on NPR. <laughs> John Hodgman did a story about us. Very weird Venn diagram. But um, all... Uh, was very useful information on how to, I, I, I learned a lot about marketing, uh, promoting, stunt marketing, getting attention for things, uh, capturing emails and capturing addresses and stuff. All of it was very useful yeah. info. And so I transferred that to Broadway. That's it. Uh, Broadway PR and marketing, off-Broadway mm-hmm. shows. They need help getting butts and seats. I'm really great at getting people together. And so I'd have these parties where I'd get groups of 40, 50 people to come see a You're show. Helping wallpaper places. Yes, exactly. Stuff. Yeah. But not just wallpaper them. People that would talk about them, who would then share. Yeah. So it was pre-Twitter. Influencers. Influencers, exactly. Sort of that early phase of that before the internet, really. Um, well, I mean, the internet was around, but not right. But social it media. wasn't the same kind of yeah, force. yeah. When I met Christian, Todd Levin was blogging, and he's now a writer or was a writer for Conan, and right. he's gone on to great things. But uh, he was going to try stand up for the very first time, and so me and a few female bloggers decided to meet in person in real life for the first time. And then afterwards, we were having so much fun, we thought, let's go support another blogger. This one is a man, though. (laughs) So Todd Levin was performing stand-up at Portable Comedy, which was in the Gershwin Hotel. That's when I met Christian, who was running the show. Turns out he was a neighbor of mine here in Astoria. Uh. Yeah. And I don't know, uh, for non-New Yorkers listening, uh, proximity in boroughs is a big factor in choosing your mate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if he had lived in Brooklyn, we'd be telling a very different story right now. (laughs) When I met him and Todd, I met Eric Drysdale and a bunch of other people around this time. And um, that's when I met Mark Cuban at Colette Holly's show at Don't Tell Mamas. Yeah. And uh, all kinds of really wild nights out. But it was all these people who were very immensely talented mm-hmm. doing little teeny shows in little weird rooms. And it was so much less work than doing an off-Broadway show. It was so much easier. And I was having so much more fun. And I saw a niche with comedians who, Christian in particular, didn't have a website. Mm-hmm. He didn't know how to market himself. He was very bad at it. Comedians are terrible at it. I'm sure they've gotten better, but at, in these days, it was just like, oh, here's a niche. And so I created Ballyhoo Promotions. And so I was running Ballyhoo Promotions while I was at a lawyer uh, assistant during the day. And at the law firm, I was actually doing intellectual property trademark and copyright law. Uh, uh. Of course, that's immensely valuable tool for performers and QED and all these things. It all matters. Every job mattered. That intellectual property law, the lawyers I was working with, we worked with Victoria's Secret models and Tiger Woods and Billy Blanks and that whole genre. But then the big client ended up being the FDNY and the NYPD in trying to secure their trademark for 
their badge, you know, the, the logos, yeah, which yeah, yeah. they're municipalities. So technically it belongs to the people, right? So it was precedent-setting law that we were able to secure these trademarks for the FDNY and for the mm. NYPD and right before 9-11. We ended up publishing a book called Above Hallowed Ground, which mm. has the only aerial photos taken that day because it was from an NYPD helicopter, oh, which, wow. Eric, you're not going to believe this. You're going to get goosebumps. Guess Guess who helped build that helicopter? Whoa. My mother. My mother was an avionics technician. She built helicopters for Bell Helicopter. And during the Budweiser years, you know, the, this Bud's for you, for all you do. Yeah. She was in a Bud commercial standing with an, a helicopter. But every now and then they would do a helicopter for a military organization or, in this case, the NYPD. And wow. the NYPD, for the first time, they were going to have a Bambi bucket, which is a bucket that is lowered from a helicopter to allow water rescues. And so, of course, they were all immensely proud and they are standing in front of this helicopter with the NYPD logo all over it. And on that photo, you can see the tail number. And the tail number is like a VIN number. And there's a documentary on YouTube and there are still photos of the helicopter flying around and it's got that VIN number. And the photographer that was in that helicopter took all these aerial shots that then became the book Above Hallowed Ground that my law firm and I helped and were thanked in the in the acknowledgments. Isn't that wild? How do you only have one book and how are you not li- living because off the profits of the movie? Because writing a book is hard. Uh, it took everything out of me. And I didn't... I, I uh, yeah, that. and the post-book experience was a very... I didn't know that PPD was a thing, post-publication depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I was going through it, that's when I found out about it. I was like, why don't you warn me about this beforehand, yeah. people? Yeah, and it's true for comedians after I, taping a big album, right? Certainly anything artistically. I, I think if it's something that requires a lot of focus and energy and stuff, once you're done with it, Oof. there's that immediate euphoria. Yep. And as that starts to fade, it's like, oh, shit, well, that's over now. Yeah. You know, because you get so wired towards mm-hmm. channeling all your energies into something that's over. And it's like, And then a huge over. letdown. Yeah. Yeah. A huge letdown. I totally get that. I don't think a, a lot of people recognize it unless it's like after the fact, looking back. Right. You know what I mean? Because when you're in the moment, you know, unless you've spoken with someone who's been through that process yeah. before. I do think about writing a book, but QED takes so much out of me, and I don't know when I'd have the time or energy. But the Bizwar book I thought would be a good in between, my thought was my sequel to Burn Down the Ground would be after my dad gets out of prison and his rehabilitation or possible getting sent back to jail, you know, like fall from grace again. Who knows? Like to write about life, you have to live a life, right? And so he was going to get out of jail. Then the pandemic happened and he died. And so I still could write a sequel because like you said, I still have all these stories that are not in the book and there's a whole life outside of that since the book. Mm-hmm. But... um the Bizwar, I thought, could be a good middle ground while I was waiting for life to happen with my dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to, to just write work stories, like write working in the fireworks stand, working at Showbiz Pizza, and all these funny stories, but also about the mentors that I've had in jobs, the women mentors in particular, but there are a couple of male mentors that uh, would be worth writing about, and, and then how to start your own theater in your own town. 
maybe it could even be a book presented anecdotally about all these, you, you know, you keep talking about all the different components that somehow in the big picture all added up to yeah. what your life is now. Yeah. You know, and maybe kind of illustrate the path by presenting anecdotes of the different components right. along the way or right. whatever. All those I, lost hours uh, developing my GeoCities page, <laughs> guess what? That all factored in as well. I taught myself code and built the QED website. So there you go. <laughs> so man. all that time on GeoCities was not for naught. How did it go from Ochi's Lounge to creating QED? And I realize yeah. that covered a fair amount of no, ground. No. but Ochi's ended 92Y and um, the book followed and then when the book tour was winding down i was like well what do i want to be when i grow up you know <laughs> i was having the ppd big time yeah and yeah, yeah. not sure what to do with myself and i was like i you know i want my ochi's lounge back we were driving through and i'm sure people must have been like clamoring for you to do that because that place was so well loved yeah yeah um well it started the germination of the idea thought i thought maybe i would open it up in sullivan county because i passed a church that was for sale for such a ridiculously low amount, plus it came with a four-bedroom parsonage, and it was under a hundred thousand is what they were asking. I think they were asking eighty thousand, and the and the realtor was like, honestly, make them an offer. It wasn't uh, zoned for commercial; it was zoned mm. as a church. It felt like a little too much to bite off, you know, a four-bedroom yeah. house on top of this church, and a church was enormous, and it had a belfry. You know, I don't know how to tell, deal with a belfry. I don't know anyone up in Sullivan County. Would they support it? I honestly think now, if I opened it now, it would be well, very well supported, and it would do well. But this was, you know, ten years ago. So after we looked at it and talked about it, it was like, no, if we're going to open it, it's going to need to be either in Manhattan or Queens because we live there most of the time. You know, if right. we build this place upstate, we're moving upstate, right? And then I was like, well, we can't afford Manhattan probably, and I'm not doing anything in Brooklyn. Brooklyn already yeah. has everything, and I don't live there, and the trek there would be a nightmare. Right, right, right. Maybe if I just found a little space like this, you know, and I pointed to this little spa that was across. It's a, it was a very small little place, and it was across the street from our favorite restaurant. I was like, you know, just a little place like this. If this place were to open up, I would rent this place. And literally the next day, Eric, there was a sign on the door for rent. And it turned out not being the right size or the shape or anything about it, but it felt kind of like sitting in front of 625th Avenue. Oh, that's what I'm right? What my brain yeah. went to. It's yeah. like, come on. I manifested and I and this, I asked for a sign. The sign was given. Okay, so let me actually start in earnestness. Yeah. And that's when I reached out on Facebook and I, uh, I said, the church isn't happening, but if I were to open a place here in Queens, I'm going to do this. And I started publicly kind of crowdsourcing information and ideas. And from the get-go, like you said, people were clamoring for the idea yeah. of it and loved the idea of it. We're a little off the beaten path for a lot of people in Brooklyn especially, but it's not so far off the beaten path that it's a pretty quick ride. I mean, I used to commute to Midtown 20 minutes. So that's, that's where it became, uh, this is my Ochi's 2.0, I say. And then um, it, it didn't occur to me until like a couple of years into QED. <laughs> 
I don't know. I had read somewhere something about like whatever you were doing between the ages of eight and 12 is what you should be doing for a living or something. Mm. And so I was like, well, what was I doing back when I was eight and 11? I was like, I'm, I was running a library and a puppet show. And I even had like a swap meet where people would bring stuff to trade and they would all like they would come to my tent. I had a little tent shanty thing and we would do swap meets and stuff I'm like I'm doing all that right now. That's what I should have been doing all this time. And it just took me from the, the family trauma and getting married at 17 until I was in my late 20s to, to work it out. But I ultimately found myself doing all that, all that stuff. Yeah. I used to spend so many hours pouring over games magazines. I'd have a Nestle Quick chocolate mm. milk. That was my favorite snack with like a pickle. Or sometimes I would have peanut butter and honey on toast or something. And then I would do a crossword puzzle in my games magazine. And then I'd start to work on my inventory. And I'm like, I literally do that every morning still. <laughs> every day of my life, really since early 20s, there is, at some point there is a pint of orange juice. There is a pint of chocolate milk. And there'll be something else in there, yeah. a banana yeah, or, yeah. you know, some, something, yeah. you know, I don't need coffee. I need orange juice. And <laughs> well, at some point I need I chocolate milk. I have changed the chocolate milk to coffee for the most part. Every now and then I'll have one of those yoo or something. I did quit drinking, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, and I recently started watercoloring a few years ago. And then uh, two years ago I started ice skating. And between ice skating and watercoloring, I feel like I have – so much joy outside of QED because for a long time I was starting to feel resentful of the amount of work and pressure that's on me from QED. Yeah, yeah. And then like, well, when am I going to create art? When is the time for me? When do I get time off? And I've come to the realization that first of all, A, QED is my art. I'm creating art every day mm -hmm. by this place. And uh, B, be closed on Mondays. <laughs> well, yeah, as long as I've got one day off a week, I can find time. I think it's really important yeah. to you. You can be as busy as you want to be, with it, you know, as long as you're not damaging your health or whatever, but you have to have something that is yours, that is always yep. going to be yours. Outside of uh, it. Well, also, I think all off the internet, I do think that that's a vital reason why that I'm finding so much joy with both painting uh, uh, not as much because sometimes I do use the uh, YouTube and stuff for uh, painting tutorials and stuff. Mm -hmm. But even that is still um, uh, it's not the internet. I'm not browsing right. hate. You're, uh, you're, hate you're not stuff. going yeah. going on. You're not going online showing photos of the great chicken tender dinner you just got. Or yeah, like doom scrolling. That's the word. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's but another thing. With ice skating, you're not allowed to use your phone on the ice, and then also it's physically demanding and mentally challenging as yeah. well. And that. A level You're of fully focus, engaged. fully engaged in the uh, level of focus, but then also I get some cardio workout. I'm like, why did I ever run half marathons? They're so hard on my body, and the whole time my brain is going a mile a minute, talk, thinking about all there, the. There, there's every... too much room for you to zone yeah. out. Uh, right? Yeah. 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 So Whereas skating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't fall. Right. Don't <laughs> fall. Don't. Don't fall. Yourself. Don't hit somebody. Yeah. Where's my foot? Where's my head up? You know, arms. Yeah. All, there are so many different things to be thinking of in skating that is not not skating. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I know we, we've got to get to a wrapping up point, but there, there's two things that I do want to ask you about. First of all, you are married to one of the funnier men on the planet, Christian <laughs> Finnegan. Given what you've done, how is life being married to a comic? 
he's funny, and he is funny off stage too. But I do think that comedians can also be, you know, very tortured artists themselves and stuff. So it's just like any other artist; they go through the ups and downs of the frustrations of creating art. But at the end of the day, he and I are both artists, and so you've yeah. got a co-creative team, and then. QED being a, an art form for us as well. You know, it's got its challenges for when you're in a slump. And when I was going through my PPD after my book, he was on the rise, you know, developing a TV show. And then his TV show quickly, you know, burned out. And so he's in a, in a low, just as QED is coming up, you know. Having somebody who understands art and the the ups and downs of creating it and the importance of it and everything. I hate to use the word lucky. Luck is a four-letter word, you know, but the harder I work, the luckier I am is a quote. Yeah, but, well, you know, yeah. it, I know it's a cliche, but hard work will increase your luck. Right, right. But I feel lucky, though, to have a partner who intimately understands the importance of creating art and why you're tortured by certain things and the, the frustrations of stuff. And yeah, it's really great. Are you uh, equal partner? No, Did he I'm support not, you. I'm when? the owner, and it wasn't until the pandemic that he really started. For a long time, yeah, he would perform here on occasion and stuff. But since the pandemic, of course, I've had to lean very hard on him. And since the pandemic, he hasn't had really any work projects that demand him in a way that he feels like he's allowed to say no. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get that. So I'm, I'm totally monopolizing and taking advantage of his inability to say no. Okay, yeah. so, but he takes his marching orders from you. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, <laughs> no, I, so I'm the sole owner and operator, but yeah, lately, in the last two years, I would be remiss to say that I don't lean very, very heavily on his support. Yeah. When I've been around, you guys have always been very circumspect in not addressing anything where I might <laughs> go to yeah. the wrong, you know, because I really didn't know and it's like, it's not my business, but, yeah. you know, but in my mind, it's always been your place and yeah. I just happen to see him sometimes, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. And that you see him a lot more these days, but no, that sure. I, hopefully he'll have some some projects, especially now that the strike is over and everything. We'll see. QED is one of the best run, most enjoyable, perfect places to experience art not even just stand-up, but, right. but any performance in the city. And it's a beloved spot by performers for, for a very good reason. Part of what I celebrate about this place is not just what is going on, but that you are here. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the fact that you fucking survived the pandemic and, you know, I mean, there, there were an awful lot of people who were pulling for you guys and concerned, and the fact that you have emerged thus far on the other side yeah. and are still a mighty club. I will always take any opportunity to disparage uh, Andrew Cuomo. So let me take <laughs> this opportunity to tell everyone what a douchebag he is. The fact that we are here is in spite of him and not because of him. Mm, he mm -hmm. is a direct reason why we almost failed. And I say we, not QED, the arts in general. Yes. He had a bone to pick with Senator Generis because Senator Generis was the quote-unquote Amazon killer. Senator Generis was so, so, so helpful for trying to help the arts. Uh -huh. So restaurants were allowed to reopen. Every single type of business, escape rooms were happening, bowling, all these things were allowed to happen. We're like, okay, you can have live music at a restaurant. 
Um, so we were all pulling our hair out and freaking out. We're basically a, a lot of the comedy clubs in the city in particular are, and, and, and we were helping. And when I say we, I had helped form the comedy coalition and it was for all of New York state. But then mm -hmm. there's also NIVA, the national independent venues association. And so we were also, uh, I was very involved with the New York chapter of that. Right. And so we were lobbying Senator Schumer uh, and then on the state level, Senator Generis. Mm -hmm. Senator Generis happens to be my rep here in this Astoria area, but he's also the deputy majority leader and the Amazon killer and Cuomo's nemesis. I didn't know how much of a grind or a bone to pick that uh, or chip on his shoulder, something that Cuomo Wedge. would hold and yield over Generis. Mm -hmm. Had I known that, maybe I would not have asked Generis for help because I do feel like he squashed our attempts to reopen solely because Generis was our champion. Wow. So here's the deal. I wrote a two and a half page document on safely reopening based on our practices while we thought we were allowed to have outdoor shows. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had a conference call with Senator Generis and all of Cuomo's uh, higher-ups, like not Cuomo himself, but right. his immediate underling and uh, that that branch. They were all like, yeah, you're right. This is stupid. Put together a document. We'll get him to sign it. And we'll get you reopened. Mm -hmm. So in less than 24 hours, I wrote a two-page document that is available online the Department of Health approved it. Every state department approved it. Every single person leading up to Cuomo signed off on it. It was well-written, if I'd say so myself. Mm -hmm. And he just wouldn't sign it. And they were like, we don't know why he's not signing it. We have a meeting with him. We just kept waiting days. Finally, about a week later, we heard him on the radio maybe 10, 10 wins, saying no offense to the comedy clubs. So directly addressing me without addressing me, saying that it's not safe. And it's like you're doing bowling and escape rooms and all these things, and every single department across the state and city has signed off on this. And then he, with Gall, used my reopening plan to help do these live arts events like oh the arts are important and then he tried to plaster his name all over how much he appreciated the arts when he would do these pop-ups that mm. were like marching bands going through grand central and stuff these absurd yeah. absurd things we, i remember you saying in your initial outrage like they're having trivia nights ironically most of them hosted by stand-up yes, comics yeah they would have live trivia trivia was allowed as long as the uh, trivia host was a, a, a X number of feet away or something like that. And was like, what do you think a trivia host is? A comedian. Uh, some venues, definitely some venues who are doing comedy shows, calling them trivia and stuff like that yeah, as yeah, a way yeah. around it. And there was a lot of willful disregard for the law. But because I was leading the Comedy Coalition and Generis's, he and I worked hand in hand together, mm -hmm. I felt like there was too much of a spotlight on QED for me to try. And also, right. I, was, I'm, I was still on my cancer medication. I don't want to be reckless. I'm not trying to be reckless here. Uh, you were battling cancer at the time, uh, too. Did we mention and that? And my dad starved to death in jail and had lung cancer and undiagnosed. Ah, la, 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 la. It was good times, good times. <laughs> <laughs> well, but without just shitting on Cuomo, I could spend an hour on him. I do want to say, though, Senator Schumer, the opposite. I can't believe 
how hands-on and tireless he is. It's incredible. Mm. His dedication, especially when you're talking about ageism right now in politics and who has the right to represent and should there be term limits. I do agree with term limits in general, but as far as age goes, there shouldn't be like necessarily an age limit because Senator Schumer, I would point to him as somebody who he was on the phone day and night uh, Zooming Mm. with us. He personally called while I was here to tell me that they passed the federal bill before it even hit the news. Yeah. Just really, really personable and and truly cared. I don't think it was an act. I think it really mattered to him. Just impressive. And same for Generis as well. I could speak very highly of him. There are a bunch of other city council member people that I, I don't even know that some of them are around anymore, so I won't bother. But thanks to Schumer and the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant, QED got a grant that helped us stay open. We're still using the grant money because thankfully our landlord hasn't hadn't demanded all our back rent that we owe, which would come due potentially next year. So if he does uh, ask for it, I think that's all she wrote. But we'll see. He hasn't asked for it yet. So knock on wood, he is recognizing that that was a special time and I've paid as much as I could before and much as I could since, and mm-hmm. yeah, so we'll see. Well, you know, if shit goes down, you're going to have a lot of people battling on your behalf uh, well, also, with you. I don't know if I, uh, there's part of me that's like, maybe that's all she wrote. Ten years is a is a good run. It's, I, I beat comics. <laughs> I beat Ochi's. I beat uh, Mo Pitkins and, and Luca Lounge and all these other venues that people hold dear, near and dear to their heart. And just because they're closed doesn't mean their legacy doesn't live on. And I'm proud of the legacy of QED. If we have another five, ten years, great. If ten years is what we end up being, I'm very, very proud. And I feel like we've left a nice, good mark in the community and in Astoria in particular, but in comedy overall. Yeah. Very definitely a a major component of the New York City comedy scene. Not even just QED, but what you've done from Ochi's on. It's been very comforting to have that constant in a scene that does change and shift and yeah. what have you. So I, I get what you're saying. I will say that as someone who's on this side of it, we really want you to stay as long <laughs> as you can. But, you know, only if that's yeah. the right thing for you. Speaking of the right thing for you, you mentioned reviving the solo show, possibly. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned possibly a book. Are there things you specifically want to achieve that you're conscious of right now? I would love to learn how to do a loop jump. That's an ice skating jump. (laughs) I want to do a loop jump, and I think I might put together an ice skating program to do. That would be fun. Nothing to do with comedy or book writing, and that's the joy of it. (laughs) So that would be fun. Yeah. And then if I ended up writing a bizoir, great. I think Burn Down the Ground, the solo show, I could dust off and do probably in a couple of weeks. I don't think it would take me long to whip that together. Do Mm -hmm. I want to? Do people want to hear it? Uh, I don't know. I was going to talk to Carolyn Castiglia about it and then uh, maybe finding a director or somebody to help me with it. I don't know. We'll see. Should I write an addendum to it? Maybe I could do that audio book, and maybe I'll contact Penguin Random House today. Maybe today will be the day okay. <laughs> about getting my rights back to, so I can do a paperback and an audio book. If people want to come and support this fine venue or anything that you're doing, where can they go to do such things? QEDAstoria.com. 
And then all our social is very easy. It is at QED Astoria. This is a good thing. This episode will be released on November 1st, so our show will have passed. Halloween. But uh, we'll be back. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time out of your insane you schedule to, to yeah. run your mouth with me. <laughs> you know what I always say about these things is like, it's always interesting to me to get to know people that I already know. Yes, isn't it? You know what yeah. I mean? That's why I love interviewing people for that very reason. You always find out something new about somebody, yeah. Yeah. Again, thank you for everything that you've done. Keep doing your good work and may QED and its spirit reign forever. Yes. Viva QED. Viva QED. What a conversation, what a talk, what a person, and what a club. Go support QED, the handiwork of Cambry Cruise. It's out of print, but really, I'm sure you can find it. Go to eBay somewhere and find a copy of Burn Down the Ground's great memoir. Support QED. Go to shows, great shows. Ask when No Name is coming back, because we are coming back. There's just find out when. Yeah, that's it. I want to thank you for hanging out here. I want to acknowledge the amazing people who make this happen. First and foremost, our producer and chief audio engineer, Gary Hardcastle. Also doing some audio engineering, good friend Miles Makes Appeal Blue Spruce. Our production assistants, Stanley Recio and Jeremy Pueo. Our theme music is written and performed by the one and only King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. And thank you guys for hanging out. As always, we like to close off with a little bit of music. We're going back to the album called Supernova by our good friend Carla Lynn Hall. The song is called Remind Me to Forget. Seek out her album. It's out there. Purchase it. Great music, great voice, great human. Thanks. Until next time, I want to thank you guys for coming out to play with us. My name is Eric Vetter. I love you all. Okay.